Greetings, and welcome to Talking Trek to You, a podcast where a noob and an expert boldly go through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is Kev Kozer, and I'm here with my co-host, JG McQuarrie. Say hi, JG. Hey there, Kev. How are you doing this week? Well, uh, the computer probe that appeared in my house has recently declared me in error and imperfect, so I don't know how long I am for this world. Okay, well, as long as that computer probe isn't run by Elon Musk, I'm sure you'll manage to survive in some form. <laughs> um, this week, we have the, um, let's say, pleasure of discussing the Changeling. And as always, we are not doing it uh, by ourselves. So um, say hello to returning guest, Jonathan. Hello, Jonathan. Hello. Happy to be here. How are you doing? Pretty good so far. Um, it's funny because I was now the last episode I was on was about um, the court martial was about the imperfections of the supposedly perfect computer and that's kind of what this one is about so i'm happy to be kind of have a theme going for these back-to-back guest appearances uh well we must we must have asked you on because you are after all the perfect guest <laughs> of course <laughs> now this is usually the point where we ask our our, our uh our esteemed guest, their history with Star Trek, but we don't really need to do that with you because, uh, well, you've been on before and you've already told us. So I think we can probably just cut straight to our episode summary and get into the meat of the episode itself. So, um, Kev, would you care to give us a summary, please? Sure. Uh, in The Changeling, the Enterprise uh, comes across a solar system that is absent of life, but there is a small probe in the area. When they Beam the probe aboard is a um, computer from the early 20th, 21st century Earth, and it mistakes Kirk as its creator. It goes around wiping minds and killing people and bringing back to life until Spock does a mind meld with it, and that reveals that it is a combination of a probe from Earth and another alien probe focused on agriculture that has corrupted its programming to make it try to wipe out everything that is impure. And then starts rampaging around the Enterprise, uh, just killing people willy-nilly. And until Kirk defeats it with the logic of, you destroy everything imperfect, but you self-made an error because I am not actually your creator. And that is not actually your purpose. So it self-destructs after being launched out of the ship. And yeah, and then we have our comedy scene on the bridge. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, Jonathan, if you are to be our perfect guest, then the very least we can do is ask you your opinion first out. So how did you find this one? Um, Pretty good, if unfortunately imperfect. Um, <laughs> but it is, very, um, as I said, it's um, kind of dealing with similar themes to the last episode we talked about, Court Martial, whereas um, this one is more about um, this, as Kev just described, this being that has been reprogrammed to destroy or um, it's, what was the word they're using just basically destroy um sterilize imperfections that's the phrase that, that keep that keeps being used so um and i did have fun with it um because i picked this one mostly because i remember really loving the ending which is um kind of that classic star trek thing where it's a 1960s TV show, the budget is really great, but they're able to work around that by having a just wonderfully written uh, conclusion that basically uses the imperfect logic of this allegedly perfect being to destroy itself, which is just such a great, um, brilliant resolution to the issue at hand in the episode. Um, but um it does kind of meander a little bit. I feel like in the middle, once the nomad is on board, um, but there are some like 
really interesting um, spots here and there that I've really enjoyed. Excellent. Thank you very much. Uh, Kev, how did you find this mm-hmm. one? Yeah, I think it's fun. I mean, it doesn't quite cohere as like a strong episode with like, a solid thesis or anything like that. But it, it almost feels like... Like, I feel like you cut this down to half hour and play up the comedy a little more. This turns into like a Lower Decks episode or even like a different sci-fi comedy show because there's a lot funny about it. And there's a lot of like, it's an interesting hook where it's just a computer is on board the Enterprise and just kind of running amok. Um, so yeah, I, it's almost like the 50 minute format doesn't really serve it well, but there's so much like fun stuff here that I do think it is like an entertaining episode for sure. Yeah, I think there's a lot to recommend this episode. It's just one that doesn't quite manage to pull all its threads together. And a lot of the entertainment value just comes from the individual moments rather than the overarching structure. And that does kind of mark it down. And there's, there's, there's a lot of stuff that we've kind of already seen in Star Trek as well. So there is, you know, uh, Kirk you know, defeats a computer by logic, which we've seen before. Uh, a major crew member dies, but is immediately brought back to life, which we've seen before. You know, there's a lot of bits and pieces in this that just the repetition does them a disservice. And if it was the first time out for those ideas, I think it would serve the episode much better. But because we've seen them before, it makes it more of a struggle to invest in a lot of the concepts which are lying behind it. But having said that, even although we have seen a lot of those ideas before, they're still pretty well executed here. Yeah, it's definitely well executed. I think that's just the best way to say it. Um, It definitely feels like a lot of these repetitive ideas, like Kirk destroying the computer with logic but also i want to throw in spock doing a mind meld again like Mm -hmm. something we've seen before but it all almost feels like the show is discovering both like recurring elements in almost like a fan service way like uh people love it when kirk uh does logic against computer so let's have him do it again people love it when spock did a mind meld the last time so let's have him do it again and it's not at the point of repetition where it's annoying. It's still like fun. And they do do interesting things with both of those moments and the other moments that are sort of these recurring elements the writers have sort of stumbled upon. So yeah, it's definitely like, it's not wearing out its welcome, like you said, even though a lot of these moments are familiar. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the Vulcan mind meld, or as they describe it in this episode, the Vulcan mind probe, um, which is the kind of thing that I totally forgot happens in this episode. And like, if you had like told me that this was something that was going to happen with Spock and strange new worlds, I would think, Oh, that's just like kind of a silly thing they came up with for that show. But they do pull it off in this one, I think just because, um, I mean, just Nimoy is always a pro. And I think he yeah. sells that whole moment just so well, where it's just, him with his hands on this you know plastic prop but he sells the intensity and like makes you genuinely concerned about what this is doing to spock in the moment yeah it's it's almost going to be like beating a dead horse at this point but we're even if we don't do it right now we're gonna talk about how great like nimoy and shatner are because they are always bringing their like they're still bringing their a-game here and they're having such great reactions to everything that's happening around them um yeah i I mean, why don't we get to Nimoy? He is having such a fun time, like, playing off this probe in a way, where it's like the probe is the one thing more cold and logical than he is in his performance. So, I mean, the, the mind 
meld slash probe scene is really great. Like you mentioned, he's doing a lot of like big moments of like the monologue of like the, the sort of poetic monologue of what this probe's history is. And then the reaction at the end where he's like repeating the same phrase over and over and sort of huddling in a ball. Like that is all really good stuff, but also just like the way he seems so unbothered by everything the probe does is a little bit of subtle comedy on its own. That is just very fun. Yeah, there's a lot of space here for him to be able to really lean into what makes his performance of Spock feel genuinely unique on television at this stage. It, it's actually something we've not touched upon very much uh, on the podcast, but I do think it's worth bearing in mind. A lot of this stuff isn't camp and it isn't hacky and it isn't kind of over the top. Like Nimoy is really committed to doing this role like we saw it when we discussed devil in the dark where he has to mind meld with a pizza and it's only the fact that he is so committed to being able to deliver that approach that lets it work and it's the same thing here like you said jonathan like he has to mind meld with this sort of floating lump of plastic on wires and that's not an easy call for any actor to do but it, it just gives such a a strength to how good he is that he can do it without it becoming silly, without it becoming some kind of over the top or sort of campy pieces, a campy piece of nonsense. It's really a committed piece. And even if this isn't like a top tier episode, the fact that he's able to put that kind of commitment into the sort of role is one of the reasons that he is such a, a treasure throughout the series, because it would take the tiniest miscalculation for this entire scene to just collapse uh, and it doesn't. And it's absolutely down to how good he is as an actor that it manages to maintain its seriousness. The whole threat of Nomad itself is, I mean, we're told this, oh, 90 photon torpedoes have detonated against the shield because apparently that's something the Enterprise can survive. And like, like they, <laughs> they, they play up that kind of the threat, but it's really the reactions of the crew that act that give us a real sense of fear that make us concerned about what this probe can do. And so much of that comes from the way that Nimoy reacts to the mind meld. It's an incredibly powerful performance. Yeah. I took note, actually, you mentioned the 90 photon torpedoes thing. Cause when they mentioned that, I was kind of like, well, it makes every other spaceship that's come after this seem kind of weak, but, <laughs> but they do still sell that. It's this whole, um, it's cause I was thinking about watching it where it's like, you're not seeing what's attacking them. It's all just, it takes place almost entirely within the bridge, but that is actually still its own thrilling action sequence of just watching them strategize, like how to withstand all of this attacking that they don't know where it's coming from. So it's actually like a, a pretty good opening to the episode as well that I think manages to grip you and um, with the mystery of what could this powerful thing be that destroys 4 billion people and has this kind of power. Yeah, that um, that whole cold open and most of that first act is just the on the bridge, things hitting the Enterprise and the crew flinging themselves around, which is, again, an effect that never gets old. It always uh, is pretty effective. And it's just, yeah, it's just like a, it's a pretty thrilling open. Again, it's something we've seen before, but executed well, where... Yeah, there's not much new to this sort of the thing attack the ship and there's some sort of ship combat. It's definitely not as nuanced or uh, thought through as, say, the ship combat in a balance of terror. But it's just like a fun action scene to start of the episode. I don't know. It's just a very smooth opening to like an episode that is very smooth all around. 
Yeah, for an episode that doesn't necessarily distinguish itself on the originality stakes, the fact that it's able to still do all the things that it does this well is kind of a you know a credit to the way that the episode has been put together. Like that that conclusion where Kirk just defeats a, a computer by logic, um, we saw it in Return of the Archons, and it right. was fine. It felt slightly odd that it wasn't Spock doing the logical defeat thing because you know he's the logical Vulcan, but you know okay, so Kirk's the captain, so he gets he gets that role, and we have the same situation recurring here where Kirk defeats the bad guy with logic, but you kind of sort of think maybe Spock should be doing that bit. But again, we understand that Kirk's the one in charge, so that's that's fine. So again, that, that slight sense of illogic is overcome by how well this episode is put together. And there's something just incredibly pleasing about the way that they, they very definitely play it against type. And they do it again in the same way that happened to Return of the Archons. Kirk gets to defeat it. He points out to Spock, oh, yeah, hey, I've used logic because I'm like clever in that. And and Spock just has to go, uh, uh, yeah, whatever you say. And then mm-hmm. we get our comedy ending and, and off we go. It, it's, it's, all, it's all so familiar, but it's also just so smooth. And we haven't reached the point where that repetition has started to descend into cliche. I mean, we're only, you know, in the first few episodes of the second season. Right. And they're still able to put enough conviction into playing that familiarity that it doesn't it doesn't just feel repetitious um and yeah it's it's just something that that it works it, it they're able to still land it at this point in the series and it does i do think of that kirk being the one to be logic does set up like one of my favorite spock kirk exchanges which is when um spock says my congratulations captain the dazzling display of logic kirk you didn't think i had it in me did you spock, <laughs> spock. no sir uh, <laughs> yeah. Kirk. yeah that's it's, that's just the really good stuff. Like the actors so familiar, they know how to play it at this point, and like the writers know how to write it. Um, mm-hmm. Looking into the writing, so this is the first episode written by John Meredith Lucas, who would later the second season take over from Gene Elkoon as the sort of supervising producer of the show. But um, yeah, he has good. I mean, he clearly understands these characters and the parts where he doesn't. Like Coon and I believe. Um, DC Fontana is still on the staff at this point, maybe like making edits and oh, they understand more, these more, than, so more well. than edits, more than edits. She was, she was very nearly a co-writer in this. She actually turned down a co-writer oh. screen credit for uh, the amount of work that she did on it. She was vastly involved in being able to actually bring this script to fruition and have it be as, as good as it did. She, she helped do a lot of the character work for uh, Kirk and Spock and she's absolutely pivotal to this episode working at all. Um, DC Fontana is incredibly important to change her. Thank you for the correction. That was not on Memory Alpha. I just had it listed as final edit, final draft, which it would usually have for any other episode. Um, but yeah, like this is such a strong core showrunning team at this point. And Lucas obviously understands how the show works coming in, especially, I mean, he clearly does it well if he's in a matter of months, he's going to be taking over a lot of supervising duties for the show. So yeah, just in general, there's a lot of, it's just, like I said, it's just running like a clockwork system. It's running so smooth. Everything is sort of locked into place. So even like an episode without a brilliant amok time or balance of terror idea behind it can still be like fluffed up to be very entertaining television. So 
I agree with all that, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. There are a few things that we need to discuss going through this episode, and I want right. to get one of the biggest ones out of the way sort of relatively early on, um, which is Uhura. And the whole mind wipe and that, you know, and, uh, hmm. now, you know, Gene Alcoon can be a little bit fast and loose with uh, the way that reality works, even at the best of times. Uh, the whole mind wipe and then, but who is reeducated to, uh, you know, presumably Starship level by the time the next episode rolls around. Now, I know mm-hmm. we don't know how long that is, but still, Um I don't know. How are you feeling? I'm really curious as to what you think about this. I have I have relatively strong opinions on it. You'll be unsurprised to discover. I'm really curious to hear what uh, what both of you think about this one, especially uh, Kev. This is this is your first time yeah. in this episode. So how how did you find that whole plot thread? Very annoying, but <laughs> it's the '60s. What are you gonna do? I guess. Um, I think it is just like a matter of just people like a lot of writers time just like not knowing just just thinking that oh it's the future so everything can be fine like we can fix any problem including death that we put our characters into just because we have future technology that we haven't dreamed up with yet and not really thinking through consequences of what happens i mean i feel like this is like just a pattern when you look at science fiction like of this era and before where it's just like i don't know, just love storytelling in general i there's just the idea of consequences. I mean, you have to reset the episode by the next one so people can tune in because they would have missed the next one because there's no taping or very few reruns or anything like that. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's... They wanted a big shock moment of losing a memory and then they just have to sort of deal with the fact that, eh, no, 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 she'll be fine. It's annoying, but I don't know. I'm I'm not, like surprised it's so rushed off if that makes sense yeah the um as you guys were discussing i was thinking about how um i think it works well to drive to kind of her get memory getting wiped and uh scotty getting killed and what nomad can and cannot do about those actions i think it works well to flesh out the idea of nomad which is this idea of oh i can fix a dead human but I don't need to fix this alive human because I have fixed her by removing these imperfections. Um, So I think it kind of works well to flesh out Nomad's whole deal, but then the episode is kind of doesn't know what to do with her after that. So you kind of have that one throwaway scene of her relearning first grade vocabulary and then that tossed off line at the very end of, oh, she's up to college grade now after an undetermined amount of time. So um, it's a good idea. I just don't know if they um, sketch them way, sketch their way out of that corner as well as they could have. Yeah, I think that's probably a nice way of putting it. I mean, I think Nichelle Nichols gives an absolutely lovely performance. I think she does mm-hmm. very, very well with it. Um, if anybody has a, a 1960s sexism meter, it should be pinging hard here. Um, right. <laughs> when we get all the stuff about the, uh, oh, what is it? She's a woman. Oh, she's very chaotic or whatever it is. It's like, yes. oh yeah, of course, because only women can have these strange chaotic thoughts about them, um, which is, is less than great. Um, I, I, there's one detail that I find utterly fascinating about the whole thing. And it's the idea that that scene in sickbay 
where uh, Nurse Chapel is helping to teach Uhura to read again. Uh, and it's, you know, the whole thing, you know, about uh, the dog and the ball. And uh, in frustration, uh, Uhura kind of gabbles something in Swahili and Chapel corrects her and says, no, no, in, in, in English, Uhura, not in Swahili. Um, but we're led to believe that Nomad wiped Uhura's mind completely clean. So why has her uh, apparent English level been wiped out by Nomad's probe? But, but it seems like her, if you, in, and I'm using heavy air quotes here, but her, her kind of base language, which is Swahili, seems to be kind of intact because she, she, she gabbles in it sub, almost reflexively while she's still struggling with, you know, incredibly basic English phraseology. I find that an utterly fascinating detail, both about the way that Nomad's kind of mind wipe works, because it clearly doesn't wipe her down to absolutely nothing. She's not learning like right. from a baby level of, of, of complete, uh, you know, lack of knowledge. And clearly there's some sort of linguistic skill still in there. She clearly can still speak Swahili, but she's being made to learn English again, and presumably that means English is either a, a second language or a third language or, or whatever it is. It's such a tiny detail, but I kind of love that. It, it's the one thing about that whole, like, oh, well, Nick, she's up to college grade by the time the credits roll, the next episode she'll be a fully qualified, you know, um, lieutenant or whatever she is. But just that one little detail fleshes out so much that is both interesting about Uhura as a character and about what it is that, that Nomad is actually doing to her so yeah I, I i kind of adore that all right this is a piece of fact that memory alpha does come through on though i can't find a citation for it so please don't get mad at me if this is apocrypha but uh, apparently nichelle nichols fought for that line being included because that, that was her logic was um even if her mind is wiped she would learn the swahili first because uhura that was uhura's first language in like story bibles or whatever and so that's what she would revert to if her English was gone. You're right. It doesn't quite think things through of what the other characters are saying. They're saying her mind has been totally wiped. And Michelle Nichols is interpreting it as just some kind of level of knowledge has been wiped. And she has to, and like Swahili is like ingrained in her side. It doesn't make sense. It totally doesn't make sense. <laughs> but it is fun that like, she fought for that moment. It is a great moment, like you said. I do like it a lot. Um, that's where we love Nichelle Nichols. Yes. And uh, yeah, she is. She asked for that moment to be included, which is great. Um, yeah, I think it is just a matter of, again, just like not thinking things through. When you say the mind is totally wiped and then you just have her, because we have the power of recording tapes and learning tapes or whatever uh, McCoy says, she's back to college level in the span of a day and next week or whatever, in the next episode, she is, she is now totally herself again. Um, I, it just speaks to a writer from 1967, not knowing how the mind works, I guess, or just, you know, not caring for the sake of a good moment. It is just odd, but, yeah, it we just I don't know. It's it's interesting because there are some good moments that come from it. Like it is a kind of a horrifying thing that gets you in the right headspace of how horrifying this thing is. If it can just like casually people's minds and and then it casually kills Scotty and brings them back to life. Like that's I obviously wouldn't be the first 
evil robot with like control over people in that sort of wide sweeping way in fiction, but it definitely feels like I, I was looking it up. This is the same year as I have no mouth and I must scream. And it's a year before 2001, a space odyssey, which are like, when I think of 1960s, evil robots, those are the first two that come to mind. And it's playing in this, I think still fairly fresh sandbox. It does feel like it's like the idea of a computer being so intelligent it goes on a rampage and like not just like in return to archon's way where the logic dictates it plays weird war games or whatever or like enslaves people in a more like indirect um but still impactful way but this is a computer directly attacking people through science that we don't understand and i think that is like a much more terrifying and visceral thing and i think that moment for all the logical flies hits at that emotion well Right, because, um, I mean, sci-fi fans can correct me on this, but I do, like, science fiction had been around before this, but um, since Star Trek was a relatively, like, lower-budget show that could only do so much with spectacle, they had to lean more into um, uh, the um, ideas that could be kind of portrayed by two actors in a room with a prop. And I do think that this is within those limitations working impressively well even though again like it's touching on some stuff that's been they've done in episodes before and has been done in other science fiction before it so um and you know even though it wasn't as popular in the 60s as it would become later on it definitely helped in popularizing some of those ideas in the mainstream yeah i think i think that is actually a good point a lot of these ideas have kind of been around in literature before so if you want to have a look at some asimov some clark or and there's lots of stuff from kind of like amazing stories and all those kind of pulpy magazines but actually getting it out to a non-sci-fi audience or at least a non-dedicated sci-fi audience is one of the things that star trek was incredibly good at and i think this is a good example of that getting out yeah by the time, like Kev, you're quite right to mention, uh, like 2001, which is like the the kind of defining text of like Mad Computer. But those kind of things are still, you know, people are aware of them, but they're definitely still in the periphery. And the idea of Star Trek taking an idea like that really does help to popularize it to a whole section of the population who simply wouldn't just sit down and read, oh, well, I bought a sci-fi magazine today or I bought a sci-fi paperback there are people who are just sitting down on you know like a weekday night with their tv dinners or whatever and all right well like here's like this glossy color sci-fi show sure that'll kill time or whatever and people gradually start to get exposed to these ideas and star trek is a really great conduit for them it's an amazing kind of medium for popularizing those kind of concepts and and again for all that the changeling isn't isn't necessarily the best example it's not even the most prominent example given that star trek the motion picture has precisely the same plot as this uh, but mm-hmm. it still helps to get it out there and and that is a really significant factor uh when it comes to sort of popular culture that that star trek has is is now really even in 1967 is really now starting to to have that impact yeah it's I don't know. I just kind of love that it's really popularizing these ideas that come from like these literature and magazines that, like you said, would not have been as widespread as a TV show on NBC. Um, yeah, it's just such a wonderful, like almost service this show does in helping the genre flourish. I'm trying to think of what else there is 
to sort of discuss. I do really like um, how simple the error the computer makes is, just mistaking the name Roy Kirk for Kirk. Like, as as evolved as this probe can become, it still is not smarter than my Alexa that can't understand when I ask for a pasta timer is not asking me to pause a timer. Like, (laughs) yeah, it's, I don't know. There's something very familiar about that, even in 2023. Definitely. Um, And I was also thinking the same thing, JG, about um, the, how similar the plot was to the motion picture, because um, I just rewatched that one a few months ago uh, when I got the 4K set. Um, and like right away, I was really like, oh, it's, you know, like that whole 20th, 21st century probe goes out to nowhere, runs into a much more powerful being and accidentally creates this uh, being that may destroy Earth. I was like, oh, wow, this is like basically a dry run for the motion picture, um, just, you know, on one thousandth of the budget, I assume. Oh, very definitely one the budget. Um, how do you guys feel about the fact that the the alien thing that Nomad encountered was simply called the other, and that we don't find any more out about it? Because it's an interesting kind of plot point in a way. Because with so much Star Trek now in existence, sort of sixty years on, you know, there's lots of speculation that the thing it could have encountered might have been the Borg, or might have been some kind of like other alien that we have subsequently encountered but obviously was unknown at at this period of time and yet it's all left incredibly vague and incredibly undefined so do you think that works as a plot point yes never explain it never go back and say the other was something else (laughs) like it, it really contributes to this is a big universe and yeah we know the klingons and the vulcans and maybe a few other aliens that have shown up, but I mean, most of them just look like humans in costumes. I guess the Gorn, I don't know. There's a few others, but yeah, it's, it really is at this point in the show, as like, as far as the 1960s are concerned, like there's so much we don't know. And there's, it, the universe feels so big and there can be any number of things on it. And an other can just show up and shoot a probe at a place and we'll never find out what they are. Cause, oh my God, the galaxy is just insanely big. And I think this is to the detriment of not just Star Trek, but all franchises of just everything needs to be explained. Now that we have nerd culture and fandom wikis and tight show Bibles, and we love as humans lighting up our brains with little payoffs to things we recognize, it's just the idea of just introducing something and never following up on it just because it's not important to the story is pretty much a dead idea. And it right it's obviously it's not tight writing. Like it's different qualities of good where if the other did come back in like five episodes later, which wouldn't happen in the sixties, but for the thought experiment, they came back. That would be oh, satisfying in one way. It's very you've used all of the buffalo, you've used every element. That is good writing in one sense. But I still think this idea of good writing is all in favor, which is just suggesting it something big and leaving that suggestion out there and that just makes you think of a world like your imagination then has more room to run wild um in an era where every star wars tv show that comes out is about now every minor character and exploring everything about them um yeah (laughs) i really like uh the throwback to this is just something that exists and we don't know anything about it and we never will Yep. Yeah. And um, 
the motion picture does the exact same thing also where it's just kind of this vague other being and um i think it always does well for star trek to not go too far into that whole whenever they encounter a being that's just like more powerful than the human mind can comprehend i think it does best to just kind of leave it vague because any attempt to explain it any further is just going to make it um it's just going to make it less interesting, less um, more real and less uh, fantastical the way it is here of this um, simple human earth probe that by encountering one other species has the ability to wipe out 4 billion people in an instant. I think, um, I think Kev, you were right as well when you said, don't like, just don't explain it. I think uh, like fan attempts to sort of try and sort of say, oh, well, maybe it was the Borg or something. Only, only stand to kind of make the whole universe smaller, not bigger. And and I, one of the things I love about the original series of Star Trek is how big and strange and unexplained the universe is. It, it doesn't all link up. We do just encounter things which are just things, and we don't need to have callbacks and references to them. One of the ways that I think Nomad as a, as a threat is most effective funnily enough isn't actually the writing i think it's the direction i think the way that nomad is shot makes it a threat and that's partly because they use different approaches to the models so i mean there's very obviously times where it's on straight right there's no getting, there's no getting away for that and that that's fine but of course it's 1967 of course if you want to have like a floating model probe it's on string but there's also well there's two other ones uh there's one where it rests on the floor but the one that really helps to kind of aid that sense of threat is mounted on a dolly and so you get the camera following the dolly and it gives a slightly unreal effect it's it's a very slightly disconcerting and it helps to emphasize the probe's size and because the camera is per- obviously perfectly locked to the dolly it moves with the probe so we're, we we have a probe's eye view nomad's eye view and it's really effective it works so well in establishing this threat. Everybody moves out of its way. It's not a wobbly thing on strings. It can go under doors, which is quite the achievement for 1967, mm-hmm. even although it's just putting a prop on a dolly. And it just works so well. And again, it's the simplicity of it. It doesn't need to be overexplained. It doesn't need to be fancy CGI. It doesn't need to be anything other than just the way that you shoot this object. And and so its effectiveness is absolutely its simplicity. Yeah, I took note of those, like it's, it's two different shots, one where it's leaving the bridge and one where it's leaving engineering, where it's um, um, it's almost feels handheld the way it kind of wobbles with the prop, um, which as you say, is just kind of, uh, since the show is usually locked down with its camera uh, movements, it does a really good job of kind of disconcerting you a little bit in the moment of this um of this being and making you feel uneasy in the moment yeah and i think the prop itself is also just like very fun like Mm -hmm. it's a mix of both like almost comedy and unsettling unnervingness to have just this like i just say meter tall uh three foot for americans in the audience like robot just like hovering there like it looks ridiculous but at the same time through the use of the string and the dolly and all of that to keep it hovering it it looks also a little terrifying it's just a little it's not terrifying at least unsettling no matter when it's moving around and it's as using the director techniques you discussed jg it's just 
such an effective little thing where it's it's unlike all the other humans around it. Like I was Spock is a Vulcan, but Leonard Nimoy is a human. But this is a prop that is with flashing lights on it and things that go beep and boop, and it's just so different and standing out from its environment but moving around i don't know it's hard to explain the uncanny feeling i get watching it but i think it is very effective at standing out in that way in a way that something like less tactile more cgi or more designed even like it the fact that it's just like a cone block with just these lights and vents on it is also just a little uh unnerving like there's nothing familiar or comforting or warm about this design. So yeah, it's just very effective at what it does. Yeah. I think that lack of familiarity is really the key. And I think this is really where the design department deserve a lot of credit as well, because it would have been really easy with a script like this. You know, the probe was meant to be launched like from, you know, the original series perspective, like 20 or 30 years into the future. It was meant to be launched in 2002. And it would be really obvious to have it look like something that was a piece of like NASA technology or to have the stars and stripes on the side of it or to have some mm-hmm. other kind of like contemporary signifiers that would give us a way of sort of keying into it. But there's there's a real resistance to that here there's no sense of anything that really resembles modern technology but it doesn't particularly look like enterprise technology either beyond the fact that there's a few flashing lights it doesn't look like it's been designed as part of the enterprise's aesthetic and i think that's where the uncanniness comes from it just seems to exist in its own world and it's just an incredibly effective piece of design and yeah for all the for all that I praised the acting before is the way of, of uh, you know, communicating the threat that Nomad is prepared to, uh, you know, carry with it. It's that sense that uh, the, the prop is able to back it up. It looks solid. It looks dangerous. It's physically large and it's effective because it can just do what it wants. Um, I know the scenes of red shirts getting killed are even at this point a cliche. Like, right. like this, this show mostly avoids cliche. Like this episode mostly avoids cliches, but we've got a few red shirts that peg out here are absolutely just to establish a threat. We have Nomad walking through a force field, or not walking, sorry, floating through a force field, like all that kind of stuff. Like, like this is pretty, pretty meat and potatoes. This is how you establish a threat. But ultimately... That isn't how it really establishes a threat. It's much better than that. And and when the episode leans into those angles, it's much more effective. Yeah, four red shirts fight it in this episode. Is that, I know you guys have been going through the whole series already. Is that kind of high? It seems kind of high even by original series standards for just kind of wiping out members of the crew. Oh, they were high. Oh, no, wait, you mean the, you mean the death count? Sorry, go ahead, carry on. Yeah. Yeah, it feels like a record to me, but I haven't been keeping mm-hmm. track. Maybe there's more in Devil in the Dark. I'm not sure. I I haven't been keeping count either, uh, but it's definitely a lot. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. I think Arena only had like the two that die, right? So yeah, yeah. that's the only one. Unless there was another two, I'm forgetting. But yeah, yeah, it definitely feels high. But it almost gets like less effective the more people you kill. I mean, the fact that it wipes out a whole solar system before you even meet it just feels like nothing. Like it's mm-hmm. like that is the least effective thing in establishing as a threat almost just because you can't even really process it because these are not a sources you met or you don't have the frame of reference even so it, and i think i was gonna say i think it's there mostly just to um 
make the threat of it destroying earth feel more palpable at the end right there. but i do agree it doesn't it's just kind of so tossed off kind of casually that um it doesn't quite have as much impact as it maybe should it's almost interesting to think about it how the effectiveness of the things nomad does almost is inverse to like how deadly it is like i mean killing off the solar system doesn't register for me it's like oh this is the thing that's hanging towards the ship still um killing red shirts at the end yeah yeah we know it can do that uh wiping uhura's mind a non-lethal thing to do is still the most like unnerving thing it does to me it really is Mm -hmm. like it's under my skin in a way the way the other things don't and yeah i just think that's what you kind of have to do to establish a threat is to be more creative about it not that death is necessarily off the table, but the killing and resurrecting of Scotty is also just weird. Like, really not, necessarily, weird. not necessarily killing off a recurring character um, with meta knowledge, you know, he's fine. But the resurrecting part is just like, oh, God, <laughs> that's like, how can it do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that also the first time that uh, McCoy says he's dead, Jim? Or has that kind of already been established as a quasi catchphrase for him? That had been established. Okay, all right. But but never unwelcome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely. But yeah, I mean, let's. I guess the resurrection gives us to like that last comedy beat, which I do want to talk about, which is like Spock and Kirk teasing each other over Kirk being the mother to the probe and Kirk saying, oh, I'm proud of my son. He could have been a great doctor. I Like, it is pretty funny. Like, it's not as, if we're ranking Enterprise last scene comedy beats, there's been better ones, uh, but one's more connected to what actually happened in the episode, but this one was like a pretty good one. I it got a chuckle out of me. Yeah. I think that scene again, um, I definitely, the favorite part of that final scene was the interaction I mentioned earlier between Kirk and Spock, but hmm. um, that was kind of, it was kind of pretty funny um, interaction between Spock and Kirk after that as well with the uh, father son whole idea. So it, it decent among uh, comedy scene endings for, for the original series. Four of your crew are dead. Your communications officer has been mind wiped. Your your engineer is alive by the absolute grace of God. Um, but you know, my son, the doctor. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's kind of why it that one. It's not quite as effective as the one the moment before I mentioned Jonathan and also some of the other like endings episodes is the fact that Kirk is making like of a really weird and horrific thing that happened. Um, <laughs> I mean, they always make light of whatever life-threatening thing they were just in. But usually, like, the thing specifically they were referencing was also, like, a moment of horror almost, and he's just laughing it off. Uh, but I guess people just took things in stride in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Or whatever era this is in Star Trek in-universe. Ah, uh, they were made of sterner stuff back then, and also <laughs> when we get there then, to Chronology is difficult. And I think with that, it, it's a bit of a short episode, but also I think that's probably about it for this episode. You know, sometimes uh, sometimes entertainment is, is just that, it's entertainment. And, you know, this is a, a thoroughly entertaining episode, but let's find out how entertaining and give it some scores. So, uh, Jonathan, you're a guest, so um, how would you care to score this episode out of 10? I would probably give it all in all like a 7 out of 10. Um, just kind of the ending, as I mentioned at the beginning, really elevates that a little bit more than i would have uh otherwise so yeah seven out of ten sounds good yeah okay lovely and kev uh i'm gonna go a little higher i'm gonna say eight um that's pretty much the ceiling for an episode that doesn't do much 
interesting or inspired, but I would say it hits that ceiling. It's like it's like we've discussed, it's all very entertaining and I like what all the characters are up to and there's so many great moments and moment and moments of inspiration and design. It's just yeah, as solid as Star Trek can be on when it's not reaching for something more ambitious. Okay. I think I'm going to go for Sorry, Kev. I'm going to go for seven and a half um, because um, I think it's absolutely. Um, I don't want to say meat and potatoes. That sounds that sounds far too harsh. But it's 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 Star Trek doing the thing that Star Trek does for the reasons that Star Trek does it. It's not quite top tier. There are way too many loose threads from uh, you know mind wipes and and ninety photon torpedoes and let's threaten Earth allegedly. Uh, but we won't go there. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's lots of stuff which is a bit loose, but but the moments that really do land and the performances, I think, help to kind of pull it all together. So I'm going to go to seven and a half and, and split the difference between you. Great. Um, I did find one last thing to sort of eke a little discussion out of this. On Nomad's page on Memory Alpha, it's apparently been frequently featured as a background gag because of its design and because of its history of being an Earth probe. So you have uh, Picard and Picard time travel to the 21st century. There was one on display at a gala. It was apparently featured in Enterprise in one episode. And then Lower Decks featured a model of it in a storage closet. So, you know, it's a known piece of Star Trek history, I guess you could say. And that is this episode's lasting impact is sight gags and three different other Star Trek things. I literally watched uh, season four, episode three of Lower Decks. It finished four minutes before we started recording this episode and Nomad was in it, which pleased me an unbelievable Ooh. amount and far, far more. Just as a, just as, just as a sight gag, nothing more. Um, but it just pleased me so, so much because I knew we were coming straight on to record this episode. Yeah, I have not caught up with that episode yet, though I will say uh, a teaser for when we hopefully discuss that season later on this podcast. Uh, yeah, first episode of that season, really good. <laughs> Highly recommend. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Right. Well, I think we can probably leave this episode there and move on to our recommendations. Uh, Kev, why don't you go first this week? Uh, what would you like to recommend? Sure. Uh, in deference to my Scottish co-host, I'm going to recommend one of the great pieces of Scottish art I recently watched, uh, a movie called Morvern Collar, M-O-R-V-E-R-N um, -E space C-A-L-L-A-R, uh, unusual name, directed by Lynn Ramsey, um, about a young woman who wakes up on Christmas morning, her boyfriend has unfortunately committed suicide, he left her a goodbye note, a mixtape, and some Christmas presents, and some money. And she has a very shock... I mean, the whole thing in this movie is hard to read her reactions, but she has a very shocked and cold reaction to it and just sort of goes out and parties and doesn't tell people what happens and then eventually uses the money to go on a trip to Spain. Meanwhile, she publishes her boyfriend's novel as her own, already covers a lot of the movie and i won't say more but it's not really a movie with spoilers it's more of a movie just about vibes <laughs> you really just don't know what this woman played by samantha morton in one of her first big roles is thinking and it's a wonderfully opaque performance it's a wonder beautifully shot movie as she does all these weird encounters and 
takes her friend on these weird sort of side journeys she has just trying to work some stuff out but you don't know what she's thinking what conclusions she's coming to just kind of along for the ride and i think that's beautiful i mean i loved this movie it's such a weird poem almost and yeah it makes me sad that lynn ramsey hasn't done much else uh she i also love her more recent movie you were never really here um i do need to catch up with rat catcher and we need to talk about kevin at some point and she can't get anything else financed unfortunately but uh, what a really singular voice and what an incredible movie it became an instant favorite I'm just going to slightly pile on there and say I do think it's a brilliant movie. I also absolutely love it. Um, I also want to mention the soundtrack because the soundtrack is absolutely right. amazing. Like Boards of Canada, Cannes, Stereolab, uh, Lee Scratch Perry, uh, Ween, FX Twins. It's just just absolutely rock solid beginning to end. Um, but it's an, an excellent movie. Yeah, absolutely love it. I'll also second the love for the film because I saw it a few years ago, I think when it was streaming somewhere and um, was really, really impressed by it. And even more amazed when I found out that Morton did it the same year she did Minority Report. And it's just oh, wow. two very different performances, just wonderful actress. And I wish she had more, she was able to do more stuff that gave her as much to work with as those movies did back then. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Absolutely. Um, thanks very much, Kev. Uh, Jonathan, over to you. What would you like to recommend? Um, so a couple of weeks ago, I went to go see Bottoms, um, which was a film that I was kind of skeptical of going in just because there had been so much hype around it. But um, the trailers hadn't really impressed me. And I had seen um, uh, Emma Seligman's last film, Shiva Baby, which I was kind of mixed on. But I did see it like at a... Friday night screen with only like 20 other people in the theater, which is usually would be bad news for a comedy, but everyone was really into it. And I was really into it. And it's definitely one of the best comedies. I feel theatrical comedies of the last few years. Um, I feel like it has a similar energy to like Barb and star and Barbie, where it's like these um, modern comedies that are just very, they're not afraid of being irreverent and, um, I was recently, this is going to sound like a really random comparison, but I recently watched Joe Dirt for the first time, which is not a good movie, but it kind of made me realize that a lot of those comedies I just mentioned, including Bottoms, kind of have that similar energy of being very irreverent and then like trying to do more serious stuff. But whereas something like Joe Dirt just completely flails at that, Bottoms is actually able to kind of make me care about the characters, even as it has this like, joke a minute intensity that just kept me entertained the entire time and um the entire cast is wonderful um it's just a really fun time to um definitely one i want to revisit at some point uh, definitely worth checking out Fantastic. yeah i i loved bottoms i fully agree about just that anything for a joke mentality um, what came to mind for me was like Wet Hot American Summer and Walk Hard. Mm. I mean, not quite mm-hmm. as good as those two, but man, just sight gags that just a funny poster that exists just to be a funny poster in the background. A character's going on weird dialogue tangents that just because it'd be funny for them to say that. Um, it does mean like the plot suffers a little bit. And I, I think that's my main criticism is just it doesn't really hang together the way it sort of almost wants to from a dramatic sense when like some of those other comedies cited like don't have like don't care about the plot and to their 
better. Whereas Bottoms cares just enough that it rubs up a little against it that the characters don't quite get where you want them to go. But these are such nitpicks. I'm sorry. Bottoms is a wonderful movie. <laughs> Everyone go see it. It is one of the best comedies in years. I loved it. I am going to stray onto a book, this uh, recommendation, and I'm going to go with uh, B-Side, A Flip-Sided History of Pop. And that's by Andy Cowan. Um, basically, it's taking uh, 500 B-sides uh, and just discussing them a little bit. That's pretty much all it is. But it's absolutely fascinating to have some time spent on singles, which were, you know, I mean, who really bothers that much about B-sides? But there's so much interesting material there. There's so much rich history. And some of it is very familiar with, you know, uh, Beatles and, and Queen and The Who and Depeche Mode and, and some of it's really weird and obscure and some of it's um, just this really rambling, interesting, um, weirdly alph- alphabeticalized uh, ramble through uh, single B-sides. There's a lot of really unfamiliar material alongside the stuff which is much, much better known. And it's just a, it's just a fascinating little insight into a part of music that... Um, people kind of, there's, there's that thing about, you know, if you love a band, um, especially if you're uh, like my good self uh, of a slightly older generation, it, like if you love a band, one of the ways that you're able to demonstrate how much you appreciate that band is is by knowing their B-sides. And it's, it's sort of lovely to have a book which is just really dedicated to that. It, it's one of those phenomena that you think, oh, well, like, if you listen to whatever band it is that you love and people start going oh right but like have you heard this like obscure b-side or have you heard this um like special thing that that was released in something whatever um that's fine but it tends to be something which is restricted to especially when it comes to sort of pop cultural analysis a specific band so you might have a book about i don't know beatles b-sides or or whatever it happens to be but one of the great things about this is it's so much broader in its palette it runs sort of pretty much from the 1930s right up until now and even as b-sides sort of fade into history and and kind of become a a forgotten relic of the past as, as physical media also becomes a relic of the past it's kind of fascinating to have that exploration of uh an aspect of, of pop culture, which I guess is fading away, but which, you know, is still, again, for those of us of a slightly older generation, uh, a, a really fascinating part of why so many of us fell in love with particular bands. So, yeah, that's my recommendation. Uh, B-Side, A Flip-Sided History of Pop by Andy Cowan. Oh, that's awesome. It sounds good. Lovely. And um, probably we can then uh, move on to plugs. So, um, Jonathan, what would you like to plug? Um, well, I am over on the site formerly known as Twitter and also on Blue Sky now, uh, both at JonathanMB32. If you like box office stuff, that's mostly what I tweet. Um, just get into the really nitty gritty nerdy details and other dumb movie stuff. We can never go wrong with too much nerdy detail here. That's that's pretty much what this <laughs> podcast exists for. Um, Kev, would you care to tell people how they can get in touch with us? Yeah, uh, you can find the podcast on twitter and blue sky talk trek to you on twitter the full name talking trek to you on blue sky um i barely use my twitter and most use my blue sky these days it's max rubo's roadie on both jg's writing can be found at jgmcquarry.scott and you can uh, help other people find the podcast by like rate and reviewing the podcast on your podcatcher of choice 
Oh, and that's right. Uh, other podcasts. JG also has Beatles Stephology, going through the Beatles track by track. And I am a frequent guest on the currently dormant podcast, Total Massacre. Maybe by the time this comes out, uh, the host, Rowan Kaiser, will have revived it or turned it into something else. But we'll see. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And Jonathan, thank you for coming back and joining us on our trek once more. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And we can probably leave it there, this episode for The Changeling. Next episode, it's time to strap on your fake goatees because it's mirror, mirror time. And as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking. Thank you.